Welcome to part two of our series on the short but stout book of Habakkuk, which I've entitled Fear and Faith. And I want to begin by asking you this question. What attributes immediately come to mind when you think about God? Because our answers are very telling. I wonder how many of us would have immediately described God as just. You see, in seeking to make Christianity more palatable to the world, and sometimes even to ourselves, we attempted to belittle his justness. And yet there is no getting around that God is just. Being just is who he is. And if we are honest with ourselves, we expect it from him. It's certainly what Habakkuk expected of him. Uh, in Habakkuk 1, we hear him wrestling with God, trying to reconcile God's justice with his experience of the world in the face of gross evils and injustices that had come to characterise Judah. Where was God? Why hadn't he done something? Did he not care? Habakkuk expected God to act justly. And he does. He reveals to Habakkuk that he's appointed the Babylonians to punish Judah by taking them into exile. Uh, it was an unexpected answer to prayer and it was an unwelcome answer to prayer. And it raises another moral dilemma for the prophet because Babylon was even more wicked than Judah. How could God use the wicked to judge the righteous? How could he allow the wicked to prosper? And our reading last time ended and our reading today begins with chapter 2, verse 1, with Habakkuk stationing himself up on the city wall, waiting, standing by, awaiting God's answer. Notice that for neither Babylon, Babylon nor for Judah does Habakkuk seek mercy or forgiveness. He's seeking justice, Right? Something is terribly wrong and it cries out to be put right and mercy or forgiveness alone can't do that. Can you see that? And we share Habakkuk's longing for justice too, don't we? Just last week, the Australian government issued a press release. Uh, Scott Morrison announced this, quote, Last year, 39% of convicted child sex offenders did not spend one day in jail. That's just not okay, not even close. He continues, these offenders are the lowest of the low. This week we passed important new laws to ensure child sex offenders go to jail for at least a mandatory minimum sentence. This is going to help keep our kids safe and give our police and prosecutors the strong laws that they need to put these grubs away. And he added, I hope they serve way more than that. Something is terribly wrong and it cries out to be put right. It's not just a matter of showing mercy or seeking forgiveness. We all have this sense that justice needs to be served. Now, human systems of justice are crucial, but they can only achieve so much. There will always be those for whom the justice system will fail in one way or another. We, like Habakkuk, long for justice, perfect justice. Forgiveness is not enough. There must be justice too. Indeed, we'd never be able to respect, let alone love a God that always ever 
loved and forgave, but never was indignant or just. That there would be no real and ultimate justice would leave us helpless and hopeless. But in Habakkuk chapter 2, we learn that God is just and he will bring justice. He will judge evil and right wrongs. And so I've entitled this sermon uh, Promise because that is essentially what it is. It's God's promise to Habakkuk that he will judge the Babylonians. And so this passage is basically a series of, of woes that God pronounces upon the Babylonians. And a woe is, is not a curse. It's like saying, alas, it's an ironic lament for the downfall and the death of the wicked. And here God has Habakkuk write in stone in verse 2, five woes that would come upon these ruthless and impetuous Babylonians. And listen carefully, because these also give us a glimpse into God's own heart for the defenceless and the oppressed and the victimised and the abused. So follow along uh, in your own Bibles. The first woe is described here in verses 6 to 8. And it has to do with those who acquire goods by force or extortion. But what goes around will come around. The victims themselves will rise up and in return plunder the Babylonians. They will get a a taste of their very own medicine. Just as the Lord used Babylon as his agent to deliver his justice to his people, so he will use victims of wrongs and injustices to deliver justice to the perpetrators. The second woe is described in verses 9 to 11. It has to do with those who, who seek gain, not because this is wrong in and of itself, but because it is often done in such a way that is unjust, that is at the expense of others. The ends do not justify the means. In ruining others, they've brought ruin upon themselves. The third woe is described there in verses 12 to 14. Those who build empires through the bloodshed of others, sound like the Babylonians, their glory, their legacy, their power, which they have obtained unjustly, will be exhausted. And instead, God's glory will fill the earth, verse 14. And God's glory will shine all the more brightly against this dark back backdrop of sin. The fourth woe is described in verses 15 through 17. And it has to do with those who are immoral and violent and those who, in seeking pleasure and glory for themselves, demean and shame others. Yet the Lord will judge them. It'll be their turn soon enough to be exposed and disgraced. Indeed, it says that they will be overwhelmed and terrified when faced with the consequences of their own sin. The fifth and final woe is described in verses 18 through 20. And this last one is the most damning in a way. Um, it's against idol worshippers. Worshipping anything created is just, is just foolish. They will find no hope or guidance or salvation in these lifeless and silent idols. By contrast, verse 20, the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. 
So there you, there you have it. There, there you have the five woes. They're pretty comprehensive, aren't they? Uh, the Babylonians will get everything that is coming to them and it will be coming soon. Look back, at, look back with me at verse 3. For the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end and will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. And it does come, right? The prophecy is partially fulfilled in Daniel chapter 5, when Belshazzar, Nebuchadnezzar's son, sees this human hand writing on the wall. Do you remember that? But in a way, the writing was on the wall a long way, a long time before that. It's right here in in Habakkuk chapter 2. And for Habakkuk and for Judah and for those who would shortly find themselves in exile under the Babylonians, these words would have brought great comfort and joy. God is indeed just. Do you know that God has a very similar promise for us? It's less particular and it's more general, but the principle is identical. And that is that God will judge. And while God works even now to, against wrongs and injustices, his wrath against them will be decisively and universally revealed on the future day of judgment. Jesus himself says in Matthew chapter 13, verse 49, This is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the blazing furnace, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Knowing what we know of this world, this ought to give us great comfort. And joy even. God is just. Perfect and ultimate justice is not just wishful thinking. It's a future reality. Now, that's all very well, but didn't we learn last time, didn't we learn last time that no one is righteous and that all stand condemned to face his righteous wrath and the horror of hell? You see, there is this deep, deep human desire for justice, but we recoil when we are faced with perfect and ultimate justice because it raises the question of our own standing before God. If God is just and if we are deserving of wrath, then how can you and I stand before him on the day of judgment? Forgiveness will not be enough. There is a price that needs to be paid. Several years ago, uh, my brother was hit by a car while he was riding his bike to university. He was injured, uh, not seriously, but it was enough to, to shake him. But his bike, which he'd invested in as his primary means of transport, was pretty much ruined. And the elderly couple uh, who were driving were themselves shaken. They were extremely apologetic, but they did not want to lose their no-claim bonus, Right. They were on the pension and, and money was tight. And so the next day they knocked on my brother's door, once again apologised profusely and offered as compensation a bag of lemons. I wonder what you would have done. Because even if you decided to forgive them and forgive their debt, a price still needed to be paid. Bike repairs still needed to be made. Well, having reflected on why forgiveness is not enough, we will see now why in Jesus 
it is. For in Jesus, God has made a way to deliver his perfect, righteous justice and pour out his rescuing mercy. In Jesus, God himself pays the price. Sometimes when we explain the message of the gospel, we can explain it like this, that God has laid aside his justice, that he no longer deals with us as sinners, that he forgets our sin and accepts us. But that's not the whole story, is it? The gospel message is not that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins, but rather that God was reconciling the world to himself through Christ, not counting people's sins against them. Can you see the difference? John Lennox puts it this way, God did not count our trespasses. And it's not on Mount Sinai that we discover this, There we hear God telling us what our trespasses are and that he will in no way pass by sin. But it is only on Mount Calvary that we witness God's counting men's sins, demonstrating his perfect justice. The crucifixion reveals God as placing himself under his own sentence. He executed justice by pouring out his wrath against sin, against his perfectly righteous son. And he showed mercy by absorbing that wrath himself, thus allowing us to escape judgment. We're not saved by the removal of justice. We're saved by the satisfaction of justice. And this reveals the the heart of God in desiring always to move toward us, to show mercy and not treat us as our sins deserve. Because it's on the cross, ultimately, that evil and injustice and ungodly powers and authorities, including the one behind it all, Satan himself, are defeated. Jesus suffered and died on the cross because God was adamant about not tolerating wrong, adamant that justice would not be perverted, adamant that the wicked would not finally prevail over the righteous. The cross, the greatest injustice is the beginning and end of all injustices because it sets in motion a series of events that will culminate on Judgment Day where God will judge. The Apostle Peter reminds us in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8-9, to But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises. Some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. He is just, but he longs to be merciful. And so there is this meanwhile time, right? The question then for us, as it was for Habakkuk, was how do we live between the now and the then? How do we live in the present when we know the future? And again, Habakkuk can help us because Habakkuk is first told to wait for the revelation and then in the revelation he is told to wait on God and there are two ways that you can do so. You can can wait on God as the Babylonians did, as sort of self-appointed rulers who were self-absorbed and self-assured and so in the end self-destruct or you can live by faith. Perhaps the most famous verse in Habakkuk is chapter 2 verse 4 but the righteous person will live 
by his faithfulness. And faithfulness here simply means steady faith or trust. It is faith in a faithful God that translates into faithful living, especially in the shadow of trying circumstances. And in Habakkuk's day, that was the impending exile and then the exile. And in our day as Christians, knowing that our citizenship is in heaven, it is living faithfully as foreigners and exiles in this world, living such good lives that others may see our good deeds and glorify God. And then we will shine among others like stars in the sky. And if you need evidence of this, look, to, look at the life of Daniel or his friends who lived out their faith in exile, even in the heat of the moment, pun intended. It's not a matter of consistently feeling faith. It's a matter of enduring and living faithfully, no matter what circumstances you find yourself in. Uh, Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 4 is actually quoted three times in the New Testament and there we find that these words have an even more profound meaning than the prophet would have or could have realised at the time. Paul first quotes it in Romans 1.17 which reads, For in the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Now, when Martin Luther first read that, he despaired because he imagined that the righteousness of God that is revealed in the gospel emphasised how righteous God was and the standard to which he would hold us. And even though Luther was a monk and if anyone ever could have got into heaven by his monkery, it would have been him, he was tormented by fear and guilt. He admitted, I was more than once driven to the very abyss of despair so that I wished that I had never been created. Love God, I hated him. But then he saw the connection between the righteousness of God and that the righteous will live by faith. And Luther grasped that the righteousness of God was in fact a gift to be received by faith. It is by grace through faith, not that we are made righteous, but that we are declared righteous and therefore live. In Jesus, God is, God is just and the one who justifies. And this, this changed the course of his life and indeed changed the course of history. The writer of Hebrews also quotes Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 4 in chapter 10 verse 38. And there he uses it as a call for Christians to endure in difficult times. Your problems may be lasting, but they are not everlasting. The day is coming when Christ will return to receive his own and judge the wicked. And until then, we're to walk by faith, not by sight, fixing our spiritual eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. This verse is what I call a diamond in the rough. And it's one of three in Habakkuk chapter 2. The first one, chapter 2 verse 4, the righteous person will live by his faithfulness. The second, verse 14, 
for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And the third, verse 20, the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. Not only are diamonds the hardest known substance, natural substance, they're extremely beautiful. And when you unearth these three diamonds and place them side by side, you see the God who is above and behind it all. He has a greater plan for this earth than the violence and injustice it presently suffers. And he has a greater plan for you. I want to leave you with two final thoughts that have emerged out of our study on Habakkuk chapter 2. First, do not let your circumstances shape your theology. Your problems may be lasting, but they're not everlasting. Paul reminds us in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 17 to 18, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that fars outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. We may not know what the future holds, but we do know who holds the future. And that should satisfy us and stabilise us. Second, there is no need to belittle the justness of God. The righteous wrath of God can be embraced because in Jesus it comes wrapped in God's mercy. God's justice and wrath have not been compromised. They have been beautifully satisfied. And so there is no need to minimise your sin. No matter the sin, it has been paid for. You may be entirely forgiven because justice has been entirely satisfied. There's no need to cower in fear like Luther did before God. We may instead come before him in godly fear, in reverence and awe. And in Jesus, draw near to him with a sincere heart and with a full assurance that faith brings. Now may the Father of mercies who hears our cries and listens to your prayers. Be the shelter above you, the tower around you, and the rock beneath you this day and all the days until Jesus returns. Amen. Amen.